0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Martin Ellis. He is a return guest, but I screwed up the admin, so he's back again. And I'm delighted he is because Martin is my Waldorf to my statler. And he comes from a fantastic background. He's run teams of 5,000 across five different continents. He has built businesses. Uh, He's then become a miserable, grumpy old recruiter. Uh, who tells his customers and clients exactly what they need to hear, uh, whether they like to or not, which is why he's a good recruiter instead of some pandering toady Uh,
1: spit-lickle. Or lick-spittle, it's the other way around, isn't it? So, Martin, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be as grumpy as I possibly can be.
0: Wonderful. Okay, so we're going to spend some time today talking about how we as sellers get in the way of buyers and we create friction. We need to spend maybe a bit of time in reflection, looking in the mirror first rather than pointing the finger of blame to our customers, the market, the economy, or our bosses. Um, Do you mind giving the audience a couple of minutes on your history so that you can give them both barrels later with impunity?
1: Okay. Um, Working backwards, I'm now running... executive search desk at Recruitment Southeast. Been doing that for a few years. And before that, I ran my own recruitment company. I've been a headhunter for about 17 years. Before that, I worked in business services and ran businesses uh, all over the world as an executive manager and running up to that as a salesman, as a sales manager in marketing. Before that, I worked for the Economist newspaper uh, where I did everything but write for it, and they were very wise in not letting me do that. <laughs> so I write as part of a living, but probably from what some of the stuff I learned with them. And before that, I was a toolmaker. So I've worked in a number of industries and sectors at a number of levels and have quite a pragmatic view on the world, I'd like to think, and have walked into most situations from my first management job, from my first job managing other managers, wanted to rule the world. And now I'm in a different place and hopefully can share some stuff. Okay. Way. Thank you. Okay. So let's start out with the core premise that
0: many of the problems that sellers face in complex deals in particular are self-inflicted and utterly self-sabotaging. So let's start with a few moments of truth. What is What are the acts of idiocy and stupidity that we as sellers are guilty of
1: perpetrating on our perfectly lovely customers and prospects? <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> Chasing the wrong deals for the wrong motives, wanting to demonstrate, stop me here, because there's quite a few here, uh, wanting to demonst- get to the demonstrations phase of the sale and talk about you rather than the client chasing the glory deal? Where do I start? Where where do I stop,
0: rather? Well, I would start with the money behind the organization driving the type of approach that your salespeople inflict on your customers. Because if the job to be done is making the valuation number, then all of leadership's compensation is geared around making the valuation number. And that means everyone in the business is geared around that job to be done, which is making the valuation number, whether it serves the customer's needs or not. So I, I would suggest you start there. So you've let you've led large commercial teams. How did you battle the idiocy
1: of your uh, the money behind you? Yeah, oh blimey, that's a complicated one. It, and that that would start out by by how the how the organisation was organised and how it set its budgets. And how I as a manager and a business leader managed to get a budget that made sense to me and the business and the customer. And you often get the budget and maybe you think this is starting from a wrong point. But I think you start, if you start out with the wrong budget and everybody gets hairy about it, you lose your way and you end up with a really disjointed product that drives all the wrong motivations and
0: behaviours. Well, it's interesting that you say you end up with the wrong product because most people would have uh, not gone down that road. And I am very curious why you use that
1: as your point of entry to screwing up. Because I agree with you. If it's a product or service, it's very easy, as long as we're talking about the same thing, to, if you're chasing the money, you look around, you and who's doing what, what are your competitors doing, and you produce a Me Too product. Mm -hmm. Because you think there's volume there. And what's the best way to get that to market? Let's not be quite at that high price. Mm -hmm. So instantly, and people don't recognize the damage they're doing to their margin in setting that price as well, because they don't really understand how the costs are set against it. So you've got this rather fractured thinking going on, and I've seen that many more times than once. And organizations will spend a long time thinking about organizing their three-year plan and their five year plan but they're never paying any attention to it when they're doing their budget so everything becomes one year or even 3 months or yeah. even you know for so the next time you report to shell just create some very strange behaviors okay so next layer down leadership
0: as leaders i'm very fond of a wonderful quote from my pal mark herbert who says you need to be prepared to get fired every day you go to work now It takes a while for people to learn that that actually matters and that's how you become a great leader and you create more great leaders, but most don't have the spine to do it. So if you were advising someone who is moving into their first manager of manager roles what advice would you give them to prepare themselves, to gird themselves for the pressure that will come down from above and how to protect their people and clear the
1: path for them? I think the first thing you've got to do is look up. There were two change, times in my life when my mindset needed to change, and that was my first management job and then managing other managers because it is so easy to do their job for them or make their decisions for them. And when you're managing other managers, you must take a much more strategic position and ensure that your managers are equipped and armed and skilled and practised and coached to do their job. Because the trouble is if you do and start making their decisions for them, that will feed through the organisation and everybody will end up seeing it. I'm sure you have, Marcus. I'm itching to
0: pile in with something, but I'm going to let you finish first.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, think about how you manage. Don't be much more strategic and be absolutely crystal clear with your objectives. Keep those those objectives objective and think about how you start to communicate because your job is now to spread stuff through your manager's right throughout the organization, and you can't bypass those managers or else they won't be able to do their job. But you've still got to find a communication network that enables you to influence the whole organization. Well, there's a really good tip. I can't
0: remember which book it was from, but I'm pretty sure it was Mike McCallowitz, And he has this wonderful matrix. It's four boxes of do, decide, delegate and design. And I've added another one in the middle, which is coaching and planning. And what I would recommend is uh, any manager, uh, just take a a piece of paper, divide it into four, make sure there's a box in the middle for a fifth box. um, And then just tally how much of your time is spent in each of those four areas. Because I would put money on it. If you are run ragged and you're feeling pressure and burnout, the majority of your time, 80% plus, will be spent in the doing quadrant. Next to nothing will be spent in the design quadrant, which is the most important one of the four from the Kalowitzes. And next to nothing will happen in coaching. You might dress it up as coaching, but it's more telling and rescuing and doing it for them and intervening in order to save the day, because you've got a bit of a hero complex, okay? And next to nothing will go into the delegation, which means that you probably suffer from upward delegation because your people will be disempowered because you will probably have a rescuing type of management style. And chances are you want to supervise or oversee or just check it before it goes out. Uh, And then you end up doing a lot of redos which means that the majority of your actual job is done out of hours, evenings and weekends and early mornings, which is why you end up with stress and burnout. But the delegation piece is really important. But what's really important also is that you should do the least amount of deciding of all of the people in your team. Deciding should be something that you delegate and you push to the people closest to the problem and you give them good ground rules so that they know what to do so that they don't screw up. It's got to be good for the customer. It's got to be good for the company. It can't cost more than this much. Yeah. And if you screw up, you may not hide it. If you hide it, you get fired. If you fess up, then we can do something about it and not repeat it. Yep. I, what I don't see is that level of trust because managers are taught not to trust their people, I believe. You've got to...
1: Let people fail. Yeah. They don't want to. And you offer them a hand and say, look, my hand's there if you need it, if you get stuck. But if you let them fail, and it's difficult, I know. But actually, at the end of the day, if you get your job as a leader is to make decisions. And as long as you get more of them right than you get wrong, you're ahead. So a failure isn't actually a failure as long as you use that as a, as a means to write, why did that not work? What have you learned? What are you never going to repeat <laughs> out of that failure? What are the lessons you've learned and how are we gonna apply that and make sure it never happens again? I I used to have a phrase and work for this company that had every process in a book. Mm-hmm. And we all had the same books on our shelves. They were about, That's about a dust. three foot long. That's a lot of dust. That was a lot of? Dust to gather. Oh, yeah. A lot of dust, a lot of rules, and a lot of loopholes. But they were quite good. They were good at telling you about the process, but no one could remember what was in them because there was so much to it. And it was very difficult to monitor and manage. So I came up with a phrase. I may have shared it with you before. No lies, no surprises, say please and thank you. And that helped when we were talking about failure, because failure sometimes because we didn't know. Well, why didn't you know? It's your job to know. And that became quite a useful framework because everyone would remember it. And if I said it enough and had it pinned on enough walls, it started to get a life. And the... It needs teeth as well, so there need to be
0: consequences for people who do lie and who are obnoxious and spring surprises, because the cost of surprises is the ripple effect on other people. Bringing in a bluebird, which you knew was coming, but you're sandbagged, means that operations takes it right in the neck. Now, finance might be happy briefly, but now they've got this other problem that they can't resource it. And that has a knock-on effect to HR. So yep. you've got to start creating the conditions where your people feel that they can speak out and can challenge the status quo and leadership and speak truth to power. But again, what you've touched on here is it seems that there is a lack, a genuine lack of trust. If people gave, if managers and leaders gave trust, their people, by and large, would try to step up. It's yep. the way of humanity. Yes, of course, some people try and pull a fast one. But the whole problem I see is built around this culture that we have to try and control everything, that it's about a numbers game. It's that we have to win at all costs. The reality is, if you shift your perspective, I mean, neither, this isn't going to work well for either you or, or you or I, because... We're at the wrong end of the um, the spectrum on this one. But one of my favorite questions to my new coaching clients is this. How old are you? And they'll come back and they'll typically somewhere between 28 and 40. So they've got somewhere between 30. And if they're in the 28 mark, they've probably got about another 92 years. <laughs> and I want them to shift their temporal focus. So my next question is, if, if there was one thing that you wanted to become magnificent ad, the best in the world, and you were to dedicate half a percent improvement to one percent improvement every single day for the rest of your natural life, what do you think you might be able to accomplish? And all of a sudden this light bulb moment goes on and I say, well, pretty much anything I fucking like. Okay, well, what if it took you six years instead of two to get where you wanted. Would that be a worthwhile outcome? And would you be willing to slow down? Because when they slow down, they start
1: removing the friction, not making themselves the issue. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you 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 see on LinkedIn, people saying, don't have a plan B, run at it, have a big plan, go for it, balls out. And I sort of got some sympathy for that position up to a point but you end up running at things that you just end up kicking a dead dog. It will work. There's a wonderful
0: psychological experiment that I saw last year, and it's the exercise where you have to try and build a tower from spaghetti, sellotape, and paperclips. The MBAs manage the type the, the height of ten inches. The kindergartners twenty six. Okay, now. The reason the researchers suggested that the MBAs only did 10 inches, because they spent all of their time focusing on status management, whereas (laughs) the kids just threw themselves in, experimented, tried this, tried that, tried this, tried that. And in that kind of fast-paced innovation market, that is absolutely what you have to do. However, if you want to build an enterprise, you also need systems and process, and you need people who get stuff done, action takers, and you need visionaries, and you need thinkers, and you need to create the culture where all of those people can perform at their best. But the problem that I see is that what's happened is the people who are about win at any cost and make sure it's me have a tendency in many businesses to rise to the top. Actually, look at Bob Heron, Uh, Robert Bibiak's research on corporate psychopathy, 5% of the US boardroom is made up of people who are clinically psychopathic. Death Row only has a population of 3%. You saw it's only 5%? (laughs) I I admit that was 20
1: years ago, so it could have got a lot worse. Yeah. Isn't Uh, that terrifying? Yeah, absolutely. I hear about it, not quite daily, but people tell me stories about where... You know, they're being bullied, they're being persecuted. Uh, maybe it's too strong of a word. Maybe it isn't. Yeah, but so,
0: someone is being cruel for no reason other than it suits their ego. It's yeah. not about helping the other person improve. Well, I, I did an interview with a, a pal of mine, Dustin Ripetto, and he's been phenomenal at building these teams, and he's only been in the tech space for about eight years. But the question he is always asking is what can I help to get out of your way? Yeah. And yeah. That, that's what managers should be doing because you've only got two jobs. Hire great people
1: and create the conditions for them to be great every day. That's yep. it. Yeah. And that your point about incremental improvements. One percent every day, or you make a budget where you've got to be do a hundred things a bit one. 1% right, rather than one thing 100% right. You stand more of a chance doing fewer things well than one thing with everything hanging out and not on the glory of it. Well,
0: the, the, the problem with that is there are victories that are very public. And so people then only remember the unicorns. What they don't remember is that there is a failure rate between getting in series A and managing to make it through series B of 98.7%. 98.7% of the companies that started out raising series A funding do not exist by the end of series B.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. 10% success rate in series A and a 13% success rate in series B. What reason do they put down for that? I could guess. Well, in the conversations I've had with VC and private equity, business model works in their favor because they only need an 8% win rate. Three and 42 is enough, and only one of them has to be close to being big. It can be a whale or a unicorn. The others can be elephants. The rest, they can die on the vine, and it doesn't affect them because the general partners make their money 2% on managing the fund, which is essentially we'll spend someone else's money on a bunch of uh, roulette bets, and then 20% of the carry of whatever you exit. They have a vested interest in keeping the status quo. If I was an investor, I would be mightily pissed off.
1: Absolutely. Because I I see so many organizations, they get to a great point and they grow rapidly and then they don't change. And the ownership, the ownership... And they get to a point where they can cover their problems, but they've got to actually reorganise and remorph remor- themselves into a, into a bigger organisation and create new opportunities for everyone to be as successful as they can be, but they can't let go of the past. And it, is that what happens? Well, that's part of it.
0: Nokia came up with the smartphone And middle management was going crazy over it. And senior management said, well, we've got this brick, then we're perfectly happy, Um, and nothing changed. You look at Blockbuster. Netflix comes along, Netflix pivots constantly, just eats their market share. Uh, You look at what's happening now uh, with the advent of AI. Our profession, salespeople, those who respond quickly, have an opportunity to steal the lunch of everybody else, and no one will even notice until it's too late. The stuff I'm now capable of doing in half an hour has taken me two years to pull together. Now, I've got that knowledge, so with that expertise, I can bring this stuff together and I can produce something quite spectacular. Yeah, I'm shocked at uh, what I'm producing now, but I'm evolving. Now, many people don't, so let's... Turn this back on you because it's meant to be me interviewing you. Um, let, let's look at being um, a seller in this kind of market. It's a tough market. Budgets are being cut and they're probably being cut in ways that are arbitrary, that no real thought has gone into yeah. it. We've got to save 30 percent, go and find the savings from somewhere. So yeah. the first thing you do is you cut you know, the things that generate income, like recruitment, marketing, sales, customer success. And instead, you plough more money into systems to try and get rid of people. Now, I absolutely get all of that. But as a seller, you have to sell into it.
1: Yep. How do you get your head in the right place, first of all? How do you prepare for what's coming? For me, and I'm operating in that market now, it's about going into each process, each prospect, with an open mind and trying to understand. because. All of that background that you just described, they're carrying, mm-hmm. and it's causing them more stress. So how can I help them? And I'm finding I'm actually my sales rate is probably as good as it's ever been. People will talk about their budgets, and often when I start a conversation, they might talk about their budgets. I'll be honest, I ignore that, because that's just a hurdle. And if you can be compelling, They'll find the money from somewhere else because they've already made a series of irrational decisions to get where they are. They might make a more rational decision to get where they want to be if I can help them. I've got to give them the opportunity for me to help them by understanding what's probably keeping them awake at night more than they've ever been awake at night. And for every client, I'm finding that's something different. Is that what you find?
0: I mean, there's patterns. I mean, much of the stuff in my world is uh, quite similar, but their experience of it is very different. And if you are, then I mean, pe- people in marketing often talk about personalization. And what they mean is then, um, you know, take a list and run it against some very loose criteria that may or may not be accurate, and then just pummel people's inboxes. Uh, now, that's not personalization. I think One of the things I'm seeing the best salespeople do is they've been playing a longer game and they don't ever focus on their short-term pipeline. They're always focused on their medium to long-term. And if they've been doing that for more than six months, that is now becoming a short-term pipeline. But they've had time to cover those accounts. So they've got a dozen different points of contact who are already familiar They've consistently focused on being timely, relevant, and valuable. So they're not being seen as a pest. They're not an interruption. You know, when their call comes through and they see that it's Martin, they'll pick up because they know it's not going to be a time waste. And it's then your number's probably actually in their phone now. And if you have that kind of approach, when you initially speak to them, you're not trying to sell, you're trying to understand them. Mm,
1: absolutely
0: and one of the things that i've really concentrated in the last year is on trying to understand how engineers work together to build product and and to solve problems and systems thinking and jobs to be done and this kind of stuff to overlay to really understand how to have better conversations with the customer and what's really struck me is I don't need to waste another minute trying to get a first meeting ever because I can find a way to have that conversation without ever booking that meeting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm finding something very similar. As I said, as I see the market now, it's just, it's in turmoil, which means the people you're talking to are in turmoil. And if you can offer them some peace and understanding... You're going to have a conversation with them. Well,
0: the neuroscience on this is really interesting. Where there is ambiguity or uncertainty, the brain's default setting for survival is worst-case scenario. Now, this then raises two questions in my head. Given that our customers are in this state of amygdala hijack and they've got cortisol and adrenaline pumping through their system, and it never really comes out because the stress is constant and we are also creating the conditions where we actively encourage the shutting down of the clever bit of our salespeople's brains by putting them under pressure. Why would anybody deliberately choose to do that other than either ignorance or malice or incompetence? There can be no other cause. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So... You're a new manager, you've just taken on your first management role. What are the lessons and that you would impart to them so that they start out and are self-aware enough to know when they are getting in the way of their people? Wow. Huge question.
1: I know. First thing I'd say, nothing. (laughs) First thing I'd say, I've been doing this for years and years sit them down and say if it's their first job and I'm their boss or their coach, just ask them what they think their job is about because they'll Uh have confused thinking about what being a manager is. And almost without exception, they'll say within the first minute, I want to be fair to everyone. And my comment is don't you ever try and be fair because you'll make series of subjective decisions based in the moment and you shouldn't seek to be unfair either but you should seek to be consistent. Consistent and unbiased. Yeah, absolutely. And it might, that takes a bit of getting used to that that thought process. But if you're fair, you think you're being fair and the people's person sitting opposite you thinks you're being fair, but everyone else who isn't aware of the conversation, the detail will think you're being unfair and inconsistent because you're, you're t- making decisions in singular contexts i got this from my pal, Antonio
0: Garrido, who wrote a fabulously useful book called My Daily Leadership. And it's all about how leaders should keep a journal. But what's really interesting is his chairman, when he got his first MD role, called him in and said, um, yeah, quick chat. And he's got this little handwritten note on his desk saying, come up for a quick chat when you're ready. So he goes up. And they did sort of the small talk. And then he slides across a piece of paper with his very expensive fountain pen and says, so Antonio, what I really want you to do is to write down all the qualities of a great MD. So, OK, so he wrote yeah, a dozen of them down and slid it back. And um, you can do better and slid it back again. So he added a few more, thinking a bit deeper, gave it back, slid the paper back to him, a few more. OK. Now, that's your job description. (laughs) Um, I want you to carry that with you every day you're at work. Because at some point, I am going to ask you to take it out and ask you what you've worked on. Now, I've added another piece to this, which is the flip side of that page, is what does a really terrible manager do? Okay, this is your anti-job description. If you do any of these things, you need to address them immediately. And ask for help. And yep. when things go wrong with the team, you have all of them bring out the pieces of paper and ask them what they are not doing on there.
1: Yeah, that's very powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Very peachy. Because you, you, you remind me that I learned as much from my bad bosses as I have from my good. Yeah, and I've got I I I've got two managers who will remain forever nameless. They're in my head who were my worst bosses. And if I'm ever stuck, I'll think- What would they not do? <laughs> well, yeah, what would they do? And I'll do the polar opposite. And it tends to work.
0: <laughs> well, again, you know, coming back to your point earlier, I think we need to let people fail, but we don't let the business fail. No, absolutely. And we need to give people the psychological safety. And again, this is another really important quality of managers, that they create psychologically safe conditions. So people can take risks, can challenge them, can share their opinion and feel like their voice matters. And if anyone wants to look at some good research and some really good pointers, Project Oxygen that Google ran is a very, very interesting and instructive piece. And what they found was that the best managers had a steady flow of inbound referrals from people from their team recommending people they cared about to join the team. That was the number one quality um, that determined whether managers were particularly successful.
1: Yeah, that's very powerful. And returning to your original question about new sales people with new teams, I'm not a fan of being reasonable, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm not a fan of being unreasonable either. And I know that sounds like an odd thing, but I've seen... Sales managers come in and they, and if they've not been taught, they've not been shown the way, they want to be successful. And so we have big hairy targets. We've spoken about this before, and the big hairy target comes along. You can see everybody who's being given these targets. Oh shit, I didn't make it last month. Mm -hmm. It's going to be even more difficult now. So their motivation takes a, a small dump, and the end of that month, They've missed their new hairy target by a little bit more, and slowly the target and what they're doing part. And there isn't an exact science to this, but you've got to try and get people feeling successful and suck them up rather than push them down. And that's, that's quite a tricky thing to learn how to do.
0: But how, how much of this is down to the belief that managing people is about control? Um, and about supervisory because the supervisory function, the doing piece and all of that end up with delegation. That's not really it I mean the doings they shouldn't be doing. I mean what why would you do the job that you're already paying other people to do? but they just seem to have this fixation about control and about measurement. And they overemphasize those things. They overemphasize the financial side. They overemphasize the easy data to measure, not the data that matters. And I I see people buying technology and hiring
1: out of fear. But where do they pick that up from? And that will come from people above them who are believing their own publicity Mm. and feeding that into the organization, I think. I can't remember who said it. Um, It was on
0: one of the pods, but they said that everything goes wrong when the founder forgets why they started the business. And I I often see that happen when there's a crisis. I see it when they go for funding. And once they've got funding, then every month, every quarter, when they've got to make certain targets and they've got to make the valuation uh, number, then the customer goes out the window and becomes a forgotten afterthought. Yep, now, getting, yeah. so h- how do we create a culture where the customer is central, where buyer safety actually matters to everybody in the organization? What do we have to do to change that at a recruitment level? Because all of this starts with recruitment.
1: It's got to start right at the top. And that's some of those people at the top are have got into a habit of behaviors. How they break that is a real challenge. Is it worth the effort or do we just
0: go out and find the next generation and bypass them?
1: I think <laughs> it's the, it, it's the Waldorf's and Statler's of this world who've got to put our arms around people. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Come, calm down. It'll all be all right. It'll all be okay if everyone does their job. Let's just take some of the stress out of this organization because actually that's causing some of the failure. And that's, let's look at what we've got, who the customer is, what they need. Let's just, maybe there's not time to pause breath, but just stop for a moment because this spiral is going. And I'm convinced it starts from the very top, either by design or by default. But you've
0: touched on something which is very near and dear to my heart at the moment, which is the uh, almost total lack of reflection. I'm not seeing leaders taking time with their big hairy ass question and just spending time with the question trying to work around it, think, you know, ask more questions and really understand the problem. Um, I'm not seeing managers do that. And salespeople almost never. I mean, you, you see them uh, with technologies like Gong reviewing their calls. And that's that's heartening. But it's still a very small number uh, who actually do it uh, with real critical thinking um, in their head. What they're typically looking for is, oh, God, I did that. What can I do? And then they try some other ninja move instead of thinking about the customer. And this is where coaching, I think, is something Absolutely. Is horrifically yeah. underdeveloped uh, uh, in the middle management layer. Uh, one of the companies that I uh, work for and have partnered with, they have an average of 74 to 426x return on investment within six months, documented by the people going through the training. Uh, When you teach managers how to become uh, uh, modify their uh, coaching style or their management style from being command and control to one of operational coaching. So coaching in the moment based on what they see at the point of need and then putting the responsibility back on the individual to come up with the solution and the next step. It's just so powerful, but it's not done. And I, I, I wonder. I mean, you'd probably be out work if their managers coached. Uh, they wouldn't need to keep replacing people, would they? Guys, sorry, sorry, say that again. You, you'd be out of work because they wouldn't have the turnover, and they wouldn't need to be replacing people.
1: No, I, I, I much rather, and I tend to want to prefer, given the choice, I prefer to deal with organisations that got a low turnover of staff. That might sound counterproductive, but I'm like they're likely to not be in a swirl. They're managing their people well. They and me will have a relationship that will sustain rather than the whole thing being in a in an absolute whirl and eddies and no one listening to anybody else. And like you say, not taking, not reflecting, not taking coaching, not giving coaching. And I think that's possibly happening more than. From what I see at the moment, the last few months, that seems to be more the case than I've possibly ever seen. Not a scientific sample, but I think that's happening. Let's take advantage of your
0: expertise here and think about people who are, and there will be a lot, who are losing their jobs at the moment, or they're uncertain whether their job will still be around by the end of the year. So what advice would you give to people who want to go for the unadvertised market and start creating their own pipeline of prospective employers?
1: Firstly, being clear about what they want next. And I talk to lots of people. I sometimes write people's CVs for them. Uh, And it's clear that, well, I could do this, and I could do this, and I could do the other. And they could do so many things, they fall between stalls. They don't have any real focus. So I think the first thing would be to think about, have a conversation with themselves about what they want, or at least be clear about what they don't want. Mm-hmm. Read, listen to podcasts, reflect, have conversations in the mirror, do their own psychometric, understand their, themselves and their behaviors. I, I use uh, a psychometric called DISC, which you've probably mm-hmm. heard of. Yep. And as a tool to get people to think about themselves and what they want, that's really powerful. Even if you don't respect, and some don't, some people have got no time for psychometrics. Personally, I think they're wonderful things if they're used in the right way. But they will open up conversations that you can have with yourself that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Mm-hmm. And I think there's you know, people who are feeling pressured aren't thinking about those things, they're just trying to get through the day and trying to get through the job. And you're right, they're probably under threat. It's best to start thinking and getting your head in shape about what you want next and be ambitious about it. Don't do yourself down. To build on Martin's points then, uh, one thing
0: I really like to do when I'm coaching people if they're looking for new work is the first thing is identify your best day at work in the last two, three years. What were you doing? Who are you doing it with? And go into a lot of detail. You know, try and recall the situation because what you're looking for is the emotional hook. And you're looking to try and understand why that was a great day. Uh, Was it the thrill of the chase? Was it the kill? Was it the outcome? Was it the customer coming back and saying how great the outcome was for them? Was it the complexity of the problem? Was it the challenge? You know, what what kind of role did you play? You know, were you working on your own? Were you working with other people? All this kind of stuff. Then worst day at work last two, three years. What were you doing? Who were you doing it with? Because you want to get both sides because what you don't want to do is move from frying pan to fire. That's really important. Once you've done that, there are two other really powerful exercises. The first one is a default future statement. So if I carry on as I am, without changing, without getting outside help, then where will I be in 10 years, five years, three years, two years, one year, six months, three months, and where am I today? And you let that percolate for about two weeks. Then you do your ideal future statement. So everything has gone according to plan. Okay, so this is where you're using dumb goals. So they're dream-based, they're uplifting, uh, they're method-friendly, and they're behavior-based. Okay, and then you make the behaviors smart. Yeah. Yeah. So you pull together this uh, ideal future. And I always like to put dates and times associated with each of those things that you want to accomplish or experience because it leaves the reticular activating system on and it hates unfinished business, loose ends, just drive it insane. Um, So it just, it's there at the back of your mind, keeping you focused on that one thing. Now, when you're designing the job, then what you do is you take your best days at work and you look at the kind the fit. You know, what's what's important, meaningful work look like? OK, what kind of boss do you want? Do you want one who gives a damn or just leaves you alone or what? OK, and um, you know, how do you want to grow and develop? And if you start to plan this, then what I like to do is start to market those people. Um, and uh, there's, you know, is there a martinellis shaped problem? that needs a Martin Ellis-shaped solution. And then people become the solution to business problems. Now, for, as a recruiter, that's a really powerful strategy for selling recruitment at premium fees with rec- um, retainers and exclusivity. I was working with one client. He was getting 50% of first-year's total guaranteed gross emoluments. And that was the last recession. <laughs> they are very useful recessions, aren't they? Yeah. If you use them right. Absolutely. Well, this is my fifth. We survive them. The, the the key is keep
1: a calm head. Yeah. And people are, at the moment, feeling a lot of pressure. And and sometimes, I mean, one of the other things is think about, people think about the organisations they want to join and ignore what they need from their manager. And I will often say to people, look, you've got to do due diligence on your manager. True, they might move on. Yeah. But at least... A great manager will make a bad job wonderful and a bad manager will make a great job stink. Absolutely. There's not enough focus on that either, but I mean, that comes after they've they've done what either you suggested or I've suggested. Getting a job,
0: if you treat it like any other sales campaign, it's just a prospecting job. Yep. So, and the, the key is to pull together your list of good managers. And you need to do this over time. So if you're thinking about your career, what I would do is make sure that every week you're trying to you know connect with at least five decent managers. So you're going to go through your LinkedIn um, uh, connections and look at your second generation. Look at the people that your contacts are working for. Ask them what it's like working in that company and just start gently. Start with gentle questions, maybe one or two. What's it like working in that company? And just leave it at that. Thinking about a move, wondering what you uh, you think of this place. And then you start moving into slightly deeper questions and you layer them. You've got time to start working and referencing
1: all the managers that you're going to head on. Yep. Interesting one was my son when he was 21. Quite sweet, quite innocent. I hope you're not listening, Sid. <laughs> no, I hope you are, actually. <laughs> and he found a company he wanted to join as an apprentice software engineer and he found people on LinkedIn and connected with them, including the people who had gone through the recruitment process the previous year. And bless them, they told him how that worked, how uh, what he had to do, what they were looking for. And it gave him a tremendous competitive advantage and people were helpful. Why wouldn't you ask these people? <laughs> Just the people who are ahead of you. And they will tell you. I couldn't agree more. But again, a lot of people
0: are afraid to ask and they won't ask and they limit themselves. So we failed uh, to cover the one thing that we said that we would. So we're going to wrap up on that then because I want to make sure we keep the promise, which is how do we as sellers create needless friction and self-sabotage?
1: Sorry, how do we as sellers create needless friction and self-sabotage in terms of planning no step back for me it's about and i'm going to repeat what i said what i've said twice i think before it's when i'm meeting prospects is not to put my needs ahead of theirs Mm -hmm. and it's i've almost got to the stage i've realized I was taught, go to the clothes, go to the clothes, have pressure on the clothes. And I've almost found that if I don't put pressure on the clothes, that become, I become, I think, a more attractive proposition. Mm-hmm. The conversation becomes more constructive. And the more my sales process, even at my age, becomes more conversational and the more curious I get, I find that barriers that I... I probably put them, put there, I've imagined these barriers mm-hmm. earlier in my career. I put them up and then I had the bloody job of beating the bloody things down <laughs> when they didn't exist. And I'm finding now that that's, I almost feel too relaxed. Yeah, it's possible to feel too relaxed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I suppose that's relaxed is relative, relative isn't it? <laughs>
0: Well, I, I think you need to show up with a certain amount of energy and enthusiasm, but what they oh. do is a puppy and they don't want a feature of function monkey. They want someone who's going to actually listen, uh, pay attention. They're going to ask really powerful questions. I mean, my whole coaching practice now is built around teaching people how to master questioning because they want better answers, but they also want to work out how to help their customers drive change. and. Most of the time, what I see is sellers get in the way because they are trying to get their needs met. They're focused on hitting their quota or pleasing their boss or whatever. And the net result of that is they forget that the customer's agenda is quite different. And they're trying to accomplish something that is probably a lot more complex than your point solution can solve. With these big, complex strategic deals, you need to understand that you are just one moving part. And if you're not working with partners, if you're not working with other parts of their business, if you're not working with other suppliers, odds are you are missing the mark.
1: Yeah, yeah. uh, Sorry, I should say when I, I I, I use the word relaxed. I don't, (laughs) I'm not great at relax, but. (laughs) Relaxed intensity. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> that'll
0: do i'll use that yeah if we're going to be our customers ally instead of their adversary or instead of their accomplice just reinforcing bad behaviors and not being their ally what needs to change uh, in terms of our beliefs uh, our internal self-talk
1: what we're willing to do and not do the customer's the most important thing but at the same time, we're not subservient to them. We challenge them. We're an equal partner. Yeah, they can challenge us. We can have difficult conversations that don't get personal, because it's quite easy to be subservient. You almost feel like you're the service, and actually, not. You're not being the partner makes a big difference, and you've got to have a confidence to do that. But you've got to. But. Uh, if you're conscious about it or with it, then you stand a chance. That thing about the customer and where they sit and not being subservient, I think is really helpful. And that doesn't mean you just challenge them for the sake of it. You just ask bloody good questions. I think it's, it comes down to planning and preparation.
0: You know, I, I fundamentally believe that buyers deserve salespeople who are the best prepared the most well-rehearsed, and the most provocative. And I think every company should have those kind of salespeople. Our profession is in grave danger of being made irrelevant because people don't act with integrity. We often take things personally. We make bucket loads of assumptions, and we're not trying to do our best. And I think those four things really do matter in sales, especially where you're dealing with decisions that are life-changing for the people who are making the decision and uh, could be strategically catastrophic if they get it wrong for hundreds or thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of people. You yeah. have a responsibility
1: to sell ethically and well. I absolutely couldn't just dis- I don't disagree with that at all. Fully support that. And I didn't mention research and I should have done. So it's not just having a look on their website. Um, it's talking to their people, it's talking to their clients, it's looking at their LinkedIn company page, it's looking at their Twitter feed, it's finding out what's going on in the here and now, um, because that will inform some of your questions. And playing the long game as well. So again, with these large
0: accounts, the average number of people that a salesperson selling to over a 1,000 people, this was an SRC 2018 study, um, in over a 1000 people was 1.65 decision makers and back then there were 6 to 8 decision makers in those buying committees today i've seen research of between 18 and six, uh, sorry 8 and 16 people in buying committees now you have the evaluation committee and then you have the decision making committee and very often you're only talking to the evaluators you don't have any access to the decision makers and That's where you have to really get smart.
1: And that's, you've just opened the door on something huge there. (laughs) And on that note, we shall finish. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably right. (laughs) Because it's just about where you find yourself selling, and I will actively avoid selling to groups where the decision-maker isn't there. When there are people put in the way, like professional buyers, who don't have to live with a decision apart from what money they saved, perhaps, or how they've ground the price down. Uh, and I know many of my competitors will willingly go to them and talk about price more than I will. So there is a big discussion to be had about who you deal with, whether you, what the profit is in a tender, what you let your competitors have to clog up their business. That's one, perhaps another day. Well, it's a
0: huge, huge topic. So I'd like to have that conversation with you because I think we could have a lot of fun. But the point being here that when organizations are considering making a really big investment in a strategic system or a really key person, there are many moving parts. And we as sellers have to be aware of that. And if through laziness or ignorance or just being too rushed, we haven't done our research. We do them a massive disservice. Now, if you think about this, a CFO of a $100 million business is about fifty to 58000 a day, or is that an hour? I think that's their hourly rate. You better turn up and be useful to them um, because yeah. you have no right not to. And if you don't, you're going to end up in Siberia if you end up anywhere in the organization at all. And yep. so all that effort that you've spent sweating blood to try and get access to impossible decision makers, you blow because of lack of preparation, lack of rehearsal. So a couple of tips. First thing, um, look at your prospect list and then run the square root against the number. So if you got 4,000, you got 63 is the square root. That's how many of them are likely to generate the bulk of your revenue. Yep. Find those 63 and focus on multi-threading and working deep and wide within those organizations
1: months or even years before you intend to sell to them. Yeah. And one other thing I'd add is that lots of organizations set up barriers that get in the salesperson's way. And actually, if you can get through to the decision maker, you can often bypass those. And the decision makers, the decision makers who say, well, it might be, they, these might be the rules around here, but I like this person, I want to speak to them. You lot sod off. That's happened a lot, and that does happen a lot. And you can take advantage
0: of that. However, I am going to caveat it. As a result of people buying in that way, I have seen some really terrible purchase decisions that the employees in the company then had to live with, and then there was a knock-on effect with customers. So. Two things I'm going to push back on on what Martin said. The first thing is that procurement should be, if you've identified strategic procurement, make them your ally. They are only about 10% of procurement, 90% are tactical, and they're going to try and shaft you on price. Okay, we get that. However, if you can get high up enough in the procurement organization and you understand their involvement with finance, especially now, they are finance's right hand. They're going through every contract with a fine tooth comb and they're looking at the ones that they can cull and they're looking at where they can get margin. If you've been smart, and bear in mind, think about this for the next recession, which will probably be around 12 to 15 years, okay? Start the process now. of Cultivating your relationships with buyers and really focus your attention on understanding what, they, what visibility they have of the problems across the organization, because strategic procurement is plugged into every part of the business. And if you imagine a night bombing raid, every time a bomb drops, you hear a little pop and there's a flash. Those are pain points within the business. If you're flying at 30,000 feet, you can see all of them. If you're on the ground, you're just trying to dodge the bombs. Okay. Now, you've got to, if you can partner with procurement and partner with other parts of the business so that you start getting that 30,000 foot view, then you can start to bring together clever solutions that combine yours and other people's solutions in order to solve the bigger problem that the customer actually gives a damn about and the C suite will invite you in over. And that isn't being done anywhere near enough. You are right. And it's fertile territory for a
1: longer conversation than that. With that happy note, how can people get hold of you, Martin? I'm always on LinkedIn. So just look for Martin Ellis at Recruitment Southeast on LinkedIn. Or email me, martin at recruitmentsoutheast.co.uk. Happily speak to almost anyone. (laughs) Excellent. Martin Ellis, thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Pleasure, Marcus. Enjoyed it. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, tag someone, subscribe, and please leave a testimonial or um, a review uh, for the part. If you're looking for a coach who will help you become the best prepared, the most well practiced, and the most provocative questioner that your buyers will ever meet, then maybe you want to have a quick chat with me. There's a link in the show notes. And there'll also be a link on the post. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.